Father, I pray that each of us would be looking forward to that glorious day. Truly looking forward to it. That glorious day of your return. That glorious day when you will conquer all evil, all wickedness. That glorious day, Father, when we will live with you in your eternal kingdom, loving you and worshiping you to the fullest without sin in our lives, Father. And I pray that as we look forward to that glorious day, that that would greatly impact our lives here on earth, right here, right now, and for your kingdom that then we would live life in light of that glorious day. In the way that we think, in the way that we speak, the way we act, in our relationships with one another, that the world out there would truly indeed see something different in us because of that glorious day that we are looking forward to, and that, and that, Lord, you will provide those opportunities. We will look for those opportunities to speak of that glorious day to others. And, Lord, as we now ask that you would prepare our hearts to receive your word, and as, Lord, we will have this focus on these end times events And including that glorious day, oh Lord, I I pray that you would just help us to comprehend and to understand, to be convicted of, certainly how to apply your truth to our lives. And we pray this all in your son Jesus' name, amen. In most Good versus evil stories, and who doesn't like a, a good good versus evil, good triumphing over evil kind of story, there, there tends to most often be some kind of climax in that story where you, you see or witness the destruction of those evil forces. You see the destruction of the wicked. In a favorite of our family, story-wise, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, In fact, currently going through that series now with our son, Owen, and we're in that book. The White Witch, towards the end, in this climactic time, is making war with Peter and Edmund, Pevensey, and then the Narnians that are with them, When the lion Aslan, along with Lucy and Susan, who have been riding on Aslan's back, finally arrive on the battle scene, and Aslan shouts, Off my back, children! And they both tumble off. And then with a roar that shook all Narnia, from the western lamppost to the shores of the eastern sea, the great beast flung himself upon the white witch. And Lucy saw her face lifted towards him for one second with an expression of terror and amazement. Then lion and witch rolled over together, but with the witch underneath. 
And at the same moment, all warlike creatures whom Aslan had led from the witch's house rushed madly on the enemy's lines, dwarves with their battle axes, dogs with teeth, the giant with his club, and his feet also crushed dozens of foe, unicorns with their horns, centaurs with swords and hooves, and Peter's Tired army cheered, and the newcomers roared, and the enemy squealed and gibbered till the wood re-echoed with the din of that onset. The battle was all over a few minutes after their arrival. Most of the enemy had been killed in that first charge of Aslan and his companions. And when those who were still living saw that the white witch was dead, they either gave themselves up or took to flight. End quote. It's a great story. It's a great moment. I can see that moment. They, they captured it well, even in the movie, when the white witch looks up with terror and amazement. And Aslan just... <laughs> Friends, why do I tell you this story? Not, not just so we can have story time here. We know that the scriptures have some tremendous promises for us about what lies in the future. God's promise. God's promise of total and complete victory. And like with most stories of good versus evil, which we certainly see in the Bible, in order to get to that victory, there first must be this moment of destruction God's destruction upon his enemies. It's, it's the fact that we have a just God that cries out for that. And so two weeks ago, back in our study of 1 Thessalonians, Paul turned a corner in his letter to address some of the concerns of the Thessalonians that they, that they had pertaining to the resurrection from the dead. The main issue seemed to be that there was some misunderstanding about how this was all going to work or, or they were just not remembering exactly what Paul had, had told them and, and there seemed to have been some kind of confusion because they understood this resurrection uh, would need to occur before God unleashed his judgment and wrath upon the earth and, and it could be too that they had even mistaken some of the persecution that they were currently going through, uh, thinking that might be God's wrath and judgment. And then, well, if that's the case, uh-oh, nobody's been resurrected. Our, our dead loved ones that are believers are still in the grave. What's going on? Did we miss it? And there was some concern, some genuine concern. And Paul did not want them to grieve about this. And we also learned that the truths that the Thessalonians had previously learned from Paul and what we will continue to learn today also imply, because we're talking now about end times events and certainly the return of Christ, but there's this implication that there are several stages of Christ's return. Uh, The word there, the Greek word is his parousia, his second coming. Because first, there is this coming that we looked at a couple weeks ago in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, that is about Christ resurrecting believers, Christians, Those who have died, and then as well, rescuing Christians who are still alive 
prior to God's wrath and judgment upon the earth. And of course, in that instance, we read in the scripture that he comes back to the clouds and they meet together in the clouds. Now, we'll call these Christians, obviously, the church. But see, there's also his coming after this time of judgment and wrath that we have come to call the tribulation time, which will culminate in his final judgment, the great tribulation time, then his final judgment being the great white throne judgment of all who have not believed in him. And it's at that time when he returns that he returns fully bodily back to the earth. His feet are standing on the earth. Now, it's a little unclear, maybe, how the Thessalonians understood some of this this timeline of these things. Hence, Paul's reason for addressing them uh, in the passage that we had back in chapter 4 and and. And offering his assurance for for that passage that that no, nobody had missed anything. Everything was just as it should be, and it was right on track. In fact, Paul clarifies that Jesus will return to the clouds, as we said, not completely to the earth at first there, back in the uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. And this is is kind of one of those miracles of mystery when he takes the dead and resurrects them, And they are now with Christ in the clouds. Because frankly, we cannot begin to fathom how a dead body, bodies in even different stages of deterioration, will be made whole again. And will be glorified. And even caught up with Jesus. Caught up in the clouds. Now what we can understand is we can understand Jesus' resurrection, right? Absolutely. Jesus' resurrection body resurrecting from the dead into a glorified body and we could even say that maybe that is the the prototype if you will for our glorified bodies and there's all kinds of other questions we can ask on some of what what happens then uh, you know is, is somebody the same age that they were and what age did they look and this that and the other this will then be followed by those who are still alive after the dead are raised then those who are alive will be, we learn that word, harpazoed, right? Snatched up, caught up. The Latin being rapio, raptured. And they too will meet Jesus in the air to always be with him. And that then, right then and there, would offer the Thessalonians the comfort that they desired. Because again, Paul didn't want them to grieve as as those who had no hope and, and to grieve as not knowing what, what was going to happen with their their loved ones who had already died, those that had put their faith in Christ. Now, we recognize that most of us will be in that first category, it would seem, right? That first category of those who have died and then will be raptured. Unless, of course, Christ would come to the clouds right now. Or right now? Or right now? It hasn't happened yet, but we look forward to that happening. But we might imagine that, that many of us, well, we, I guess we could say we really don't know. We really don't know. But it may be that we have already died and we are waiting for our resurrection as well. But back then, it seemed that the Thessalonians and even Paul believed that 
Jesus would, his return would actually be in their lifetime. But obviously that was not the case. And in fact, it's, it's been some 2,000 plus years and we are still awaiting his return. And of course, time means nothing to the Lord, though, who exists outside of time. Uh, one of his attributes being his eternality. He is our eternal God. He has no beginning. He has no end. We learn in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, with the Lord, one day is like, what? A thousand years. And a thousand years like one day. So 2,000 years are just, boom, nothing. It's like two days to God. Two days to him. And this all then now brings us to chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. Where Paul continues with this theme of eschatology, or as we said, end times events. But he makes a shift from kind of dealing with the issue of the dead to really focusing on the issue of the living. And he does so in the context of now what happens next. Christ has come back to the clouds. He's raptured his church in that we understand that he is bringing to him not just those members of the universal church who have died, but also those of the church who are still alive to be with him, followed then by his judgment and wrath. He is rescuing those who are alive from his judgment and wrath to come. That's kind of the spoiler alert for what we will get into here in our text today, which is his judgment and wrath. And, and you think, well, who doesn't want to be rescued? Absolutely. I want to be rescued. We first saw this rescuing from God's judgment and his wrath back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. When Paul comments how they turn to God from idols, meaning the Thessalonians, to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. In other words, yes, there is this rescuing of a future wrath. That would be upon any and all who do not believe, who have rejected God, who have rejected his son, the Lord Jesus. Now, another place that makes it clear that the rapture is about God rescuing his church from the wrath to come. We're going to see a little bit later on in the passage that that we will be in today, which is first Thessalonians chapter five. But in verses nine and ten, Paul writes, for God is not destined us for wrath. But for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, the asleep meaning dead, we will live together with him. Paul writes to the third church in Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3 verse 10. He says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance. Also, steadfastness. I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I certainly believe that this passage is referring to God's judgment. God's judgment and wrath upon the earth that we then see play out in Revelation chapters 6 through 19. And again, friends, the, the whole point of salvation, right, is that we are delivered from God's judgment and wrath, both in that that eternal sense, but also even from his judgment and wrath that he will execute upon the earth against those who hate him, those who have rejected him, those who have rejected his sons, those who, who still live in their sins against him. 
But you see, for those of us who have been given the righteousness of Christ, because we have been forgiven of our sin through faith, God's promise for us is that not only is there no longer any condemnation for us, but God's judgment and wrath will not be against us, nor will it come upon us. Again, for those who have believed in Him by faith, for those that have, have come to that understanding that they are indeed a a sinner who has sinned against a holy and perfect and all-righteous God and, and, and because of that sin has consequences. And it is death. And it is separation from God, eternally speaking. And it is to be in a, a place of punishment, hell and the lake of fire. But God would not wish that any should perish, but all come to repentance. And so God made a way through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, sending Him to live the life we could never hope to live, a sinless life, and then to, to, to go to that tree, to go to the cross on our behalf, to take the punishment that we deserved, to bear our sin in His body on the tree, and then, of course, to die, to go into the ground, but three days later to resurrect from the dead. Conquering sin, conquering death, proving that He is indeed God and that we can have forgiveness of sins and we can have eternal life because Jesus has eternal life and He gives that to us. So, Yes, what's next in our text this morning has to do with God's judgment upon the earth, His wrath to come upon all who would reject He and His Son. And it's kind of interesting because when we looked at chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, we realized that Paul is helping to comfort Christians over the death of their loved ones, while in now chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, he is going to be challenging us as to how to live in light of his coming judgment. To this end, Paul has both some words of warning and he has some tremendous words of encouragement. Why don't we go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. This is from Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to read this whole passage, but today's a part one, so we're only going to be hitting uh, certain verses in the passage this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Paul writes this, Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as brothers others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. 
For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I have been going back and forth, driving our tech team crazy, I'm sure, on, uh, you know, okay, I'm, I'm, I've got to switch up my outline again. Okay, I'm going to switch up my, I'm really, I'm going to do this one last time. Oh, I really shouldn't say that. I might do it again, but I'm sorry, okay. And uh, how to kind of break this passage up. And how many rabbit trails did we want to go on? Because we could go on many, especially when we start getting to this area of end times events. I finally decided that that we will break this up into I knew I would do it in at least two messages and it might even be three uh, we'll 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 figure this out this week um maybe one more than I had originally planned I, I just I'm torn because I don't want to go too fast uh with this section I don't want to gloss it over at the same time Paul is very clear about his focus for this passage and it's not that he gives him this this elaborate um Kind of, uh, okay, here's what happens, and then here's what happens next, and here's what happens next, and bum 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 in terms of end times kind of events. Uh, but I, I don't want to kind of just, you know, leave us in the, in the lurch there either. So I'm kind of trying to figure out how much to, to talk about and share regarding end times events. Paul is kind of of the opinion here that, that you, Thessalonians, you need to remember what I told you, right? You need to remember what I told you here. Um, so we'll, we'll, uh, We'll press forward and, and, and see what we end up coming up with over the next uh, couple few weeks. All of this to say, this morning our focus is going to be on this phrase, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. But we're going to look at it in a little more general sense, right? That, that kind of uh, a bigger picture um, viewpoint, looking at the, the forest versus just a single tree, as I mentioned from our previous one. And we're going to look at it in the context of the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and of course, from our passage. And then next week, we'll, I think, dive a little bit deeper into what the future day of the Lord actually consists of. And, and then I'm thinking maybe the week after that, we'll focus on, on what Paul wants us to do more in light of what he is shared about the day of the Lord, all again from our passage. So let's get back to our text this morning, where we're only going to look at verses 1 to 3 this morning, which again read, Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well what that the, excuse me, know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Let's pause there. And let's, let's ask first, okay, what is this day of the Lord, and, and, and especially in regard to the Old Testament? We see this phrase, day of the Lord, um, it's an expression used by Old Testament prophets to signify a time in which God actively intervenes in history, primarily for judgment. For instance, in Amos chapter 5 and verse 18 and verse 20, it refers to Assyria judging the northern kingdom of Israel during the 700s B.C. And in Amos 5.18, it says, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. And then in verse 20, even gloom with no brightness in it. 
And along with this, we have passages in Lamentations and Ezekiel and Zephaniah, where it's used of Babylon judging the southern kingdom of Judah, or Babylon being used to judge the southern kingdom of Judah. We could say the same about Assyria. Uh, It is used in Jeremiah and Ezekiel for Babylon judging Egypt and its allies, and in Isaiah for the Medo-Persians to also judge Babylon. Now, along with the day of the Lord being used in this, what we might call a near historical setting, right? Those were points in, in, in history that this phrase, the day of the Lord, was being used in regard to. It's also used in a far future setting as well. And we want to look at some of that. Turn to Joel chapter 1. The book of Joel chapter 1. Got to go back there in the Old Testament. It's not a, not a real uh, big one there, but, but certainly find Joel chapter 1. The context here is that Judah has sinned, and while we aren't told exactly what that sin is, we obviously know that idolatry was was a very common struggle of theirs. In any case, they are now under God's judgment, as God has sent an intense locust plague to just strip the land of, of their livelihood, really, including their food, as well as... He has brought uh, an invasion from one of Israel's enemies as well. Then in verses 13 to 14 of Joel 1, he, he tells the people they should fast and they should gird themselves with sackcloth as an act of humility and repentance and they should beseech God for forgiveness. Now look at verse 15. Verse 15, Joel chapter 1, where Joel declares, Alas for the day! For the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Has not food been cut off before our eyes, gladness and joy from the house of God? And so in other words, the the day of the Lord is identified as a time of God's judgment in this near historical context, right? It is it is happening right then and there. It's not something far off into the future. And it will continue this day of the Lord, God's judgment, until what? Until Judah repents. And what's interesting then is what happens in Joel chapters 2 to 3, where this phrase then begins to, to take on a prophetic nature of something that is to take place in the far future as well. Look at Joel chapter 2. This is Joel 2, beginning in verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. This is God speaking through Joel, right? Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. And then if we were to skip down to verse 11... We read, the day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? The implied answer would be that nobody would be able to endure it. This is not great and awesome, friends, in some kind of positive way, right? This is not the Lego movie and everything is awesome. It's just not. It's not what he's getting at here. God then reminds his people that they should repent. And when they do, he is waiting to bring healing and restoration to them now skip down to verse 28 
where this has now happened. Their repentance. But it starts to take on this more prophetic future nature. Down in verse 28 of chapter 2. And it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Hmm. Let's think about this. Where... Have we heard this before? Because this definitely seems to go beyond mere destruction by grasshoppers, as bad as that might be, or even some local invading army. I mean, didn't we hear this from Jesus sharing with his disciples about God's judgment to come? And in Matthew 24, 29, Mark 13, 24, Luke chapter 21, of course we did. We even see it in Peter's sermon in Acts 2, verses 17 to 21, which, which shows a partial fulfillment of that prophecy there on that day of Pentecost, as well as a future judgment and wrath that is still to come. Then Joel 3, chapter 3, continues with this far future prophecy that we see show up in the Gospels as well as the book of Revelation. Um, Look at verse 13, chapter 3, verse 13. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come tread, for the wine presses full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. Now friends, sometimes the day of the Lord is implied. Uh, Sometimes a slightly different phrase is used. Go ahead and turn to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. This passage from the prophet Isaiah speaks to a future day of reckoning, which we also could understand as being this day of the Lord. In other words, it's a, a settling up of accounts. Chapter 2, verse 2 also tells us that the context is in the last days. When we read this in chapter 2, verse 12 of Isaiah, For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up that he may be abased. Skip down with me to verse 17. The pride of man will be humbled and the loftiness of men will be abased and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. I just want to pause there for a moment. I think that's interesting. Isn't that interesting that that in that day, the Lord will both be exacting judgment and wrath as well as he will be exalted, exalted. I remember we had a... uh, 
local newspaper up in uh, Trinity County, the, the Trinity Journal, and oh, you had these folks that would write in their letters to the editor, and oh, there were some doozies. And, and there was one fellow out there, and he would get into a religious kind of back and forth with a fellow from our church, actually. And, um, and uh, they, he loved going to, you know, God and his wrath and his judgment and just what an ogre he is and how horrible God is for doing that to people, etc., etc., but here we see that on that, that day, that time of judgment and wrath, he will be exalted. Exalted. Look down at verse 18. Verse 18 of chapter 2, Isaiah. But the idols will completely vanish. Men will go into caves of the rocks and into holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord. And the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble and again friends i just think how interesting it is that on one hand we have this terror of the lord and on the other hand we have the splendor of his majesty coexisting at the same time look at verse 20 in that day men will cast away to the moles and the bats their idols of silver and their idols of gold which they made for themselves to worship in order to go into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs before the terror of the lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils for why should he be esteemed In other words, stop trusting in people and put your faith in God who is the only one worthy of your worship. Not this garbage, idle baloney. One last phrase we might consider is found in Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 2. You don't have to turn there. You're always welcome to, but I'll just read this kind of quick. And it's known as the day of vengeance. So the day of the Lord is also equated with the day of vengeance. This is a messianic passage. It's about the future Messiah. And it's used by Jesus himself in Luke chapter 4 verse 18. Remember when Jesus at the beginning of his ministry is there reading in the synagogue. And he picks this passage. Then it identifies himself as being the one the passage is about. And it says the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And the day of vengeance of our God. Again, the favorable day of the Lord, right? Certainly for us who believe. And the vengeance of our God coexisting. In summary, friends, the day of the Lord is indeed about God's judgment. It is about his recompense. It is about his vengeance and it is about his wrath, whether that would occur in a near historical context like we see it happening throughout the Old Testament or in that far future context, even as we look forward to that in the future as well. This then takes us to the New Testament understanding of the day of the Lord. And of course, our specific passage of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. And that's our second point, the day of the Lord in the New Testament. Now, we have to understand that the New Testament writers, they would have first and foremost understood the day of the Lord in just the way that we have now understood it. Because they, of course, would have looked back to the Old Testament to understand it. And yes, while we have Peter, uh, people like Peter and Paul who did receive 
direct revelation from God, even then everything would have still been consistent with what the Old Testament taught and said about the day of the Lord. Something in the new is not going to contradict something in the old. And in fact, there is this tremendous continuity continuity between the Old Testament kind of far future day of the Lord and what we see as the day of the Lord in the New Testament. Because the new is really continuing the old. And the first actual mentioning of this phrase occurs in Acts chapter 2, verse 20. This is during the Apostle Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, where he quotes from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32 that we have just read. Okay, here's Peter quoting Joel. Now in Acts 2, 19 to 20, and I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And of course, Peter is reiterating this as something still to come in the future, and and we would say the same from where we sit here in 2022, because we have yet to experience what he is talking about in these verses. And of course, Jesus spoke of this time of judgment and wrath in the Gospels, even though he didn't use the specific phrase, day of the Lord. And like the Old Testament, there are some Other phrases used that imply this same day of the Lord. In Romans chapter 2 verse 5, Paul writes, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So there it's described as the day of wrath and revelation to be revealed, the righteous judgment of God. All right, so let's get back to our text. Go back to 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. Again, Paul says, chapter 5, verse 1, Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Let's just pause there for a moment. This, This word for times, it's chronos. Chronos, we get chronological right it's time as in a sequence then we also have this word epics it's kairos it literally means seasons seasons or or times at which certain foreordained events take place and of course everyone wants to know the big question when 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 are these things going to happen when is this going to happen and paul simply says you have no need of anything to be written to you about these the times, the seasons, these preordained, foreordained events. In other words, because you already know, based on what I shared with you, when I was with you, and we think, okay, Paul, what, what would have been that? What would you have shared with them? Well, in, in regard to this you know, timing aspect, when teaching his disciples about his return, Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 36, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of Man, but the Father alone. Speaking of the return of himself. Matthew twenty-five thirteen is the parable of ten virgins referencing the return of the bridegroom. When uh, Jesus says, Be on the alert then, for you do not know what the day nor the hour. That's from that parable. And then we could fast forward to Jesus speaking to them again right before he ascended, some six weeks after 
the Matthew 24 account, when Jesus told his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, it is not for you to know times or epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. As a little side note, I had a, a, a dear brother um, bring something up to me. And I thought, oh, I got to look into that. Yeah, that's good. And he said, yeah, notice there that Jesus doesn't say that anymore that he doesn't know. Because now he is glorified, right? And, and maybe it is that he has now taken back on um, those things that he laid aside during his kenosis, some of those divine privileges, uh, and maybe indeed he does now know. But in any case, nobody else would have at that time. He even tells them in verse 2 of our passage, First uh, Thessalonians 5, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. My family, we have been blessed in that we have never been robbed in the middle of the night. I imagine there are some of you even out here today who have. Maybe you were even asleep in your bed when someone showed up to your house and attempted to break in. Maybe they found a door or a window unlocked or maybe they tried to, you know, bust open a lock. Whatever the case, if, if you were there and you happened to wake up, I'm sure you were quite surprised and shocked. Even if you weren't there and came home to that, it would have been unexpected. And if they indeed did rob you, it would have been horrible, to say the least. Paul elaborates what he means in verse 3. While they are seeing, saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. We can sometimes find ourselves kind of lulled into a false sense of security, can't we? When things seem like they're going good, they're going well, we just kind of tend to, ah, okay, I can just relax a little bit and maybe we let our, we let our guard down. We don't take the precautions that maybe we might have taken previously. And the next thing you know, destruction. Something happens when you least anticipated, and it's bad, and it's bad. Now, not that this is, you know, the, uh, the, the, the worst thing that could happen to the Underwoods. It's very mild. But, um, but when we, we moved into our, our house a year ago, in, in our backyard, we have this hill, and it's just this hill of dirt. And, and it had occurred to me, looking at this hill of dirt, what will happen to that hill of dirt when it starts to rain, right? Well, we live in Los Angeles now. It doesn't rain, right? We haven't had any rain this year. And, uh, and so, sure enough, last year at this time, I, thankfully the whole hillside didn't come down. Thankfully there was enough seed in there that sprouted up. But there was enough that started washing mud down um, you know, the hill and onto the patio and this and that. And you get out there and scoop it out only to happen again. And I, and I remember telling myself, I need to do something about that. I need to do something about that. I need to come up with some way to divert that mud or put up a wall or pop up or whatever. And uh, next thing you know, summertime hits, right? The last thing I'm doing is wanting to go out and deal with the wall or the hill or anything like that. Just kind of, ah, you know, it, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Well, guess what happened? Yes, it's a mess back there and there's mud all over the place because I just, yeah, you just kind of relax. I'm not going to take care of it. And sure enough, bam, you least expect it. It's happening. Now, Paul also describes the suddenness and intensity of this destruction with this, this, this picture 
of a woman with child who starts having labor pains. And if you have been with a woman who suddenly has labor pains, right? Fellas, we know what, well, we don't know what that's like. We know what that's like from our perspective. It's like, ah, what's happening? What's happening? Are you okay? Are you okay? She's like, just get me to the hospital right now. You know, and it comes on suddenly and it's dramatic and it hurts. It hurts. Get this baby out of me. And it comes on suddenly and it comes on harshly and it comes on quickly and it comes on painfully. And that's Paul's point that when this day of the Lord's judgment and wrath comes, It will come shockingly. It will come unexpectedly. It will come even painfully. And there will be no escape. According to our text, there will be no escape. They will not escape. There will be no way to avoid it. There will be nowhere to run and hide. They may try to get into those caves and what have you. But ultimately, they will not be able to escape God's judgment and God's wrath. Now, there's another way that the day of the Lord is also specifically mentioned in the New Testament that I want to just toss out to you. And that's in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. You're welcome to turn there. I'm just going to go ahead and read it. Uh, This is Peter. And Peter says specifically about the day of the Lord. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Okay, that's interesting, right? So we have this nice continuity here between Peter and Paul. Day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. You go, huh, that's very interesting. When's that supposed to happen? Well, Revelation 21 verse 1 tells us, John writes, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth. What? Passed away. We know how they passed away. They burn up. They burn up. Intense heat. Burnt. There is no longer any sea. And Peter's point here is that the last and final act of God's judgment and wrath as the day of the Lord is his destruction of this sin-cursed universe. The current earth and heavens to make way for the new. So what we also see in this is that there are times where the day of the Lord is used again in that very specific kind of uh, near historical context. There's also that aspect and it can be referring to a, a, a specific day. A literal day. Or it can be in that also future historic sense where this idea of a day actually can be a period of time. As we wrap things up this morning, I was thinking about this. I had this at the beginning. I thought, no, this would be a good way to to kind of show you because we always want to say, okay, how do we apply this to our lives? What does this mean for us today? What what am I to get out of this? Because, you know, I'm thinking, Pastor, this, this is in the future. You know, I mean, really, what's why do I have to worry about it? So this is our our third and final point as your application. The day of the Lord as prophecy, the day of the Lord as prophecy. Now, at the risk of stating the obvious, both texts, the one that we've been in today, that we started today, as well as chapter four, verses 13 to 18 about the rapture. So we have the rapture. Now, the day of the Lord are prophetic passages, right? They're prophetic 
passages. The word group for prophet or prophecy in the Greek means to tell beforehand. As in to speak forth, to proclaim, to announce, but in the sense of foretelling future events. While acting even under divine influence. The divine influence being the Lord, of course. And I know that there are those of you out there who who think, well... Yeah, I mean, come on, what's the big deal? What's the big deal about prophecy? Hey, as long as we all get to heaven, who cares how, right? I mean, if, 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 if so many people disagree on how to interpret prophecy, well, then what makes us think that we're going to get it right here at Calvary Bible Church? Or, or maybe it's just that, that, you know, it's just so difficult to understand. I'm just going to leave that to you guys, the, the, or the, the pastors, or the theologians, or the Bible scholars, and I'm just going to love and trust Jesus. Well, that's good that you love and trust Jesus. I want you to love and trust Jesus, absolutely. The fact is, Bible prophecy, friends, makes up a significant part of Scripture. Some, some one quarter, one quarter of the Bible was prophetic when it was written. All right? Um, furthermore, can you imagine Jesus, can you imagine Jesus claiming to be the Messiah... Without the Old Testament prophecy to verify that fact? I mean, how would anyone have known if indeed he was God's son? You say, well, he did all kinds of miracles. Absolutely. Amen. But back then, what were some of the people attributing his miracles to? Satan. Satan. All of this to say, friends, prophecy is indeed important. It's very important. We need not be afraid of it. We can understand it. I say that because it's in God's word, right? God gave us his word. What? So we could be confused by it? No, of course not. So we can understand it. It is what he wants us to know about life and godliness. It's what he wants us to know about himself and and certainly how to be saved and, and his great plan of redemption. So it is important. It can be understood. And therefore, we have to do our best to try and understand it. Certainly, that begins with interpreting it properly. So there's this, this great book, and I know one of our Bible study groups had, had been going through it that, um, that, uh, that I have that they made us uh, read in seminary. It's called Understanding End Times Prophecy by Paul Benware. Understanding End Times Prophecy, Paul Benware. He sets up the introduction to his book with five benefits of knowing and understanding Bible prophecy. And the key points that I'm going to give you are his, but then I kind of elaborate on each one. And so I'm just going to give you these five and consider this your application. Be thinking about this in terms of why the day of the Lord, why the rapture, why the second coming of Christ is indeed important. And the first one is this. Bible prophecy reminds you that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Friends, in this crazy, mixed up, sin-filled, Satan-influenced world that at times only seems like it's getting worse, where up is sometimes down and bad is sometimes good and lies are presented as truth, it has to be comforting to us to know that God is still in control of it all. He is still in control, absolutely sovereign. He is the ultimate authority over the heavens and the earth, over the whole universe, And he will accomplish his good pleasure. 
Because he is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. And he is the one who will bring his final future prophetic plans to reality. Amen? Amen. Good. We got that one down. Let's move on. Number two, Bible prophecy also reminds us that God is good. It reminds us that God is good. Friends, as, as we go through the trials and difficulties of life, sometimes our, our, we have, sometimes our lives end in, in, in tragedy, even, in, in a very, very difficult circumstances. And, and when you think about it, if this world was all there was, we might be tempted to start thinking that God is really not as good and as loving as we've been told or what the scripture says. But of course he is. And knowing that God has already planned a greater end that includes victory for all of us who have put our faith in his son, that will remind you of his goodness, that he indeed is a good God. Number three, Bible prophecy should motivate you to holy living. Bible prophecy should motivate you and I to holy living because when we live in light of Jesus' return, our desire then is that when he does return, we would want to be found living faithfully. Faithfully by him, we will not want him to show up while we're embroiled in some kind of sin. As the, as the child, you know, anticipates the return of a parent, and because of the child's love for the parent, and, and wanting the parent to see them behaving well, and thus bless the child, so we desire to be found faithful and blessed by him and not in some kind of legalistic or forced kind of way or or just because well i'm just doing this so i get blessing from the lord but no rather it's because of this true and abiding love that we have for the lord jesus christ number four bible prophecy helps you to establish proper priorities it helps you to establish proper priorities friends again do you live life right now in light of god's coming kingdom you think about it we make so many things important in life don't we so many things elevating them to maybe a status that sometimes exceeds other things that really might be more important including our spiritual priorities you know i I can i can do this i got to keep tabs on myself because i can find myself elevating something even like a sport or a hobby to a, a a place of priority where it can absolutely detract from other things in my life that really are far more important things that should take precedence i mean sometimes we do this with our jobs or sometimes we do this with our careers or sometimes we do this regarding social causes even we often order our lives around so many things that mean mean so little compared to the coming kingdom of God. But you see, when we live with a keen awareness of what is to come, truly the, the joys and the, and the blessings of eternal life with God, we live in light of that. That should then affect even our decision-making for the things here on earth and our priorities. And lastly, Bible prophecy gives us hope. It gives us hope for the Christian who has the kingdom of God to look forward to. Again, 
how should this affect just even our disposition of life? Just, just how should it affect our heart and our, and our minds? Uh, what kind of heart do you suppose we would have? How about a heart of joy? How about a heart of gratitude? A heart of love and grace and tender mercies. As we've said, the Christian life doesn't promise us that we will be devoid of trials and tribulations and fear and depression and pain and suffering and disappointments. But friends, we will walk through these times with a completely different disposition if indeed we do so with the hope of God's promises to come. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you, Lord, for what we have been able to learn and glean from your word today. Lord, about what is to come in the future. Lord, I pray that we would consider these truths of why prophecy is important, why it's important to learn, why it's important to understand it, and and how we can apply these truths then to our life. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that needs to put their faith and their trust in a Savior, Jesus, the Savior, I pray that they would do so this morning, that Lord, they would know that they are a child of you, a child of the King, and they will have this tremendous kingdom to look forward to. We pray this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.